Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. As we talk today, it's going to be, um, I think, helpful for us to kind of have the mood light um, because I want to talk about grief. And so I may laugh, I may smile, we may hear joyous noises, and that's great, but we're going to talk about something that's a little hard. Um, So I was serving as a youth minister in San Diego, California for my first full-time job, and I was welcomed to that church by the pastor who was... um, had been a pastor at a church in Portland when my mom was the secretary there, but had diverged and their lives had separated and they hadn't, you know, hadn't seen each other for 30 years, since before I was born. Um, and so it was a kind of a weird coming back, like, oh, this is people I knew or I should know or my parents knew and these kind of things. And he had a boat. And so we went on the interview I got to like meet him and a deacon and their son who was in the youth group um, by going on a basically a cruise in his sailboat in the San Diego Harbor. So talk about like I was like imagining this is what my life is going to be like in San Diego. You know, I'm going to get to go to the beach all the time. I'm going to go on the pastor's sailboat. And he was telling me like we're going to take the youth group kids sailing to Catalina. We're going to do all these cool things. That was the one and only time I went on that sailboat in two and a half years of being there in San Diego. But that uh, deacon who went and brought his kid on the, um, the group was kind of an intimidating guy. He was super tall. He'd been a basketball player at San Diego State. And I uh, was very intense guy. He wrote a bunch of little pamphlet books and he gave me one on baptism. And he was like, I don't think you and your wife agree. Or I, at the time we were engaged. Um, I'm not sure you and her agree on baptism. You guys should study baptism together. And I was like, well, like I'm the youth, I'm going to be the youth pastor. Like I, I know what baptism, I'm baptized a kid. You know, it's not like I don't understand baptism. And so it was, it was just intimidating, you know, and, um, so we get down there, I've moved down there, and uh, working with this guy, he's doing a, uh, a youth group kind of uh, Bible study for these kids, a youth outreach to families who don't go to church, and he's doing a great work, and he's just really passionate about the Bible and about Jesus, and we have some conflict just interpersonally and stuff, and he tells me, you know, I really hope that before you decide to quit ministry, because he had been in ministry and had quit and was a car cleaner. He basically cleaned cars with like a vacuum, you know, he had a, had a professional vacuuming business basically. But he was basically trying to say, I as a young man got burned out in ministry and I see some of those similar conflicts happening in your life. I don't, before you quit, come talk to me. And I was having some kind of questions that we had just gotten married and I wasn't sure this was the church that my wife and I wanted to start our family in and because there was just some people who wouldn't let her teach in the youth group class and there were some things that were just kind of weird preferences that people were imposing on us. And uh, I was kind of questioning whether I wanted to quit. And that month, he died. That deacon died. He was about 50, 55 maybe, and had a massive heart attack in his sleep, and he didn't wake up one morning. And I remember thinking, this is the guy who welcomed me to the church. He had a 14-year-old. His daughter was a little bit older, but he wasn't an old guy. I thought he'd 
be there long after I left. Um, his teenager, teenage son was the closest youth group kid to me. We did beach gatherings a lot, and sometimes he'd be the only kid who'd show up because other kids were just not in the habit of coming. They lived a long ways away in traffic, and their parents weren't as committed to church events. And so I got a lot of one-on-one time with this young kid. So now I'm faced. I've been there a year. I've known this family, and he's dead. What do I tell this kid? Um, He had written a pamphlet about heaven, and so his kid had this pamphlet, this write-up of what his dad thought about the afterlife. And so he was telling me all these exciting things about my dad had cracked the code. He knew all this stuff about Revelation, and I was just like, I don't know. You know, you've probably seen on Facebook or on uh, the news about these pastors who have saying, you know, we are in the end times. And I'm like, yes, of course we're in the end times. You know, we've been in the end times since Jesus died. You know, like we're, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. That's the definition of the end times. I'm just not so convinced you can look at Iran or you can look at Biden or you can look at Donald Trump or, and you can say, look, that's the Antichrist or, you know, whatever. I just, I'm a little skeptical of that. So as this kid is reading me to his dad's very passionate views about exactly how heaven's going to be and where his dad is right now and and i i wondered well maybe that's how you process grief maybe maybe certainty is a way to process grief maybe that's good but as i i started to think about my own pain of this guy dying and my own grief i was called the the day um after he had passed away i had uh done a youth ministry event that evening and it was cooking a meal for homeless people. So we were, once a quarter, we would go down to a hotel in the district of downtown San Diego and cook a meal. And so I hadn't gotten enough people to help me, so there was a lot of dishes that were left unclean, right? Spaghetti type meal or something, and there's a lot of meat sauce and stuff, and and I'm tired because I spent the whole day sitting with this family after the loss of this guy. And I still had to go do that event. Like the homeless people were still expecting me to show up and feed them this month. You know, the ministry that I had committed to, I was still going to need to do. And I was just spent. And so I left the dishes at the church building unclean. I got a call from the secretary the next morning. I think you better come down here. The, the, uh, the women's ministry, the gals are pretty upset that the kitchen was left clean. And I had forgotten that they were doing an event later that morning the next day so yes I had done something wrong right I hadn't cleaned the dishes but I was I I don't cry like I don't ever cry but on that phone call with that church secretary I was bawling because I was spent emotionally and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to deal with my grief I normally would just get up and oh I'll clean the dishes you know I'll do the work I'll just stay busy so I don't have to process what I'm feeling about this guy dying. So either we find ourselves kind of like the kid in the story, um, trying to, you know, have certainty about what the afterlife is like. I can tell you exactly what it's like. I've had a near-death experience or X, Y, and Z, or I've, I've got the Bible figured out and cracked the secret code of what heaven looks like. Or sometimes you're like me in the story where you're just busy. You're always trying to just kind of work your way through grief. 
Um, the other one is, is you talk your way through it. So I had an elder who came to the house um, during that time, and he was a, you know, a great guy, but he couldn't shut up. And so the family, the, the poor grieving widow is, is there, and she's you know, beside herself. She had to roll her husband off the couch, his huge body. She couldn't lift him up to see if he was alive still, and then called 911, and then you know, to explaining it to her 14-year-old son that his dad had just died. And what does what she, you know, she doesn't, she can't hear anything. You could see she was, had just melted. She was just sitting there, kind of lifeless on the couch. And there's family members there supporting. So we're not, we're not really necessary. We're church people. We care about her. But coming in and, you know, swooping in and saving the day, that's not what she needed. What could we do? We couldn't bring him back. Saying, saying nice things or talking to her wasn't going to bring him back. And all he wanted to do, this elder, all he wanted to do was sit there and talk to her and reassure her, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. How can it be okay? He just died this morning. And I, I felt myself sitting there and trying to just be present with them, not sure what to say. And I found myself taking that elder by the, the hand and leading him outside and just saying, you don't need to talk. You don't need to say anything. Let's just sit with them for a little while. Let's just go for a walk with their, the teenage son. Let's just stand here for a moment. And if they need something, they'll ask. And then we'll give them space and be present for them later. And uh, it's probably one of the hardest times of loss I've had. I, I've had some family members pass away that definitely uh, was, was moments of grief. Um, but this one was very, very visceral because I, um, I was in some sort of mentor role with this kid and I had nothing to offer him. I felt like I had let him down. And um, I find myself kind of reading Jeremiah through this lens. Like as if Jeremiah is um, the youth pastor who has no idea what to do and he's speaking to this people who's just lost their temple, their land, their home. It's like talking to a kid who's lost their dad, the person they idolized, the person that they wanted to be just like, and now it's gone. And so as we read through Jeremiah, he's got a message of hope. But his message of hope has to acknowledge the grief that people are actually feeling and experiencing. And what's so sad and what I think is true in the story that I experienced with this kid is that the people who denied that he was gone, the people who didn't weep, the people who were saying, oh, we, you need to come and clean these dishes. You need to get down here. Life hasn't stopped. You know, they weren't. They weren't aware. They just weren't acknowledging that this death had hit so close to home. And that's what Jeremiah is so kind of frustrated by, is that he's, he sees the death, and he sees how hard it is and how much pain it's causing, and all his contemporaries are ignoring it. It's like they're saying, no, no, it's fine. We know what God wants to do. We've got the scriptures. There were prophets and the prophet Hananiah and these other ones that you encounter in the book of Jeremiah. They're false prophets, they say, but they are speaking for the Lord. They say they had 
dreams and visions that God said, no, no, it's okay. You're not, Jerusalem's not going to be destroyed. No, no, it's okay. Uh, this will only last a little while. It, no, it's okay. This is peace. There, it's actually not going to be a bad battle. And Jeremiah says, no, 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 this is, this is the end. This body is dead. This person is not coming back. And, um, and he's frustrated because his peers, his contemporaries, the people around him aren't acknowledging that grief. Um, and then uh, he then gets into speaking the word of hope. And so I think for us to hear this word of hope today, I want us to sit, I want us to have been able to sit in the grief a little bit. Because it, we can't hear the message of hope. It can't produce what it's going to do, that newness, if we don't and if we deny the pain and the death that's happening. So, for instance, um, we often say when you're swimming up the, the denial river, um, you don't actually process things right. right? You don't learn. If, um, if I keep falling down, um, it might be helpful to... Uh, keep getting back up but if something keeps knocking me down it would might pay for me to while i'm laying down reflect what keeps knocking me down so that i don't just keep getting up and get knocked down again right we get this when it comes to um personal grief when i tell the story you all know of people who've denied that someone has died denied that change has got to take place they're in denial about grief, and it's hard on them. It's hard on their body. It takes a toll on their spirit. It takes a toll on their relatives and friends. We have to grieve in order to get through a loss. Um, and there's been a lot of great literature recently about this. There's been a lot of helpful people speaking out about it. Um, if it's a really traumatic loss, then there are paid counselors and people who have degrees in helping us process our grief and our loss. That's a helpful thing. But as a society, we don't do this very well. We don't have a, a way in which we practice lament or mourning or grieving. We celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, but we don't celebrate MLK on the day he was assassinated. We celebrate it on his birthday, right? So even in the celebration of his life and legacy and mourning the loss of this great leader, this visionary person, we're actually doing it on the celebration of his birth, and so we're trying to spin it positively, you know? And there are people calling us to say, hey, you know, we still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> King's vision is not realized. There's a lot of brokenness in our society still. So we might, if we're paying attention, grieve a little bit every year as we realize we have a long way to go when it comes to race relations. Um and eradicating racism and those kind of things. But I think Jeremiah speaks a word to a society and a community that's not good at mourning and weeping publicly. And I would say we aren't very good at that either. Let's come into the church and think about it from a church perspective. Have you ever been to a Sunday that was like a funeral? <laughs> Today might be. It might be the closest, right? This is pretty rough. This is pretty rough. Um, yeah, it's weird, right? We do have funerals in church buildings, and so we'll have memorial services. Sometimes we'll even have a casket, open casket, and it can be pretty somber, and it can be pretty powerful for the family and for the friends to mourn and to say goodbye, right? But we don't ever do that for a church service. Right? 
But there are times where people have left frustrated, angry, people have hurt each other. We need spaces sometimes in church to mourn the losses. When someone dies, we don't want to just, um, or leaves, we don't just need to mourn that they left earth. We also need to mourn that they left our gathering, that there's a hole in who we are as an identity, as a, as a church. Um, and I'm not saying that every Sunday should be a mourning, uh, grieving service, but we need spaces and times to express that in order to then move on. So we no longer do X, Y, and Z ministry because, well, because that person's gone or because that's no longer needed or because we're tired or because we've, we don't have kids anymore or we, you know, whatever it is, have you truly mourned and grieved those things so that you might embrace what God wants to do in this season, right? If we're always looking back and saying, well, we used to do X, Y, and Z ministry, or we used to do this, or we used to have all these activities, and we don't anymore, and you just kind of plow on forward and try and maintain those as best you can, you're not really embracing the new thing that God wants to do in your life because you haven't thoroughly mourned and grieved and then let go the thing that you used to do. This is what Jeremiah wants to speak, a word of hope about the newness that God wants to do in us. We can't receive it if we aren't willing to mourn it, if we aren't willing to stop our talking like that elder and actually sit with the grieving widow. And, um, and so that's what I want us to do. I want us to sit with Jeremiah chapter, 20, uh, chapter 30. Um, Jeremiah chapter 30. So in uh, the most famous part of, of Jeremiah, I think, in popular culture, in like a Joyce Meyer book or those kind of books, will be Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, and then you will call on my name and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me um, and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart. So there's this kind of great letter that jeremiah writes to the people who have now experienced the temple being destroyed the city being destroyed they've uh, been taken uh, to babylon like we read in daniel they were um, scooped up and you know you're you're smart so you're going to work in the thing okay you're manual labor you're going to go over here you're going to live here all these kind of things and there's um, people who are living in the city of babylon in that region and Jeremiah writes to them this letter. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a letter that is saying, you know, this is going to last for like 70 years, he says. Um, and this is what I want you to do while you're there, um, is that I want you to seek the peace of this city. I want you to participate in the life of the city. And as you do that, God is going to prosper you while he prospers this city. So there's kind of a, some practicalities of, you're living in a foreign place. This is what you need to do. It would be like coming into that widow and saying, okay, there's some practical things like where you're, you know, have you figured out what your financial situation is, right? In the months after the death, you would make, you want to make sure that, you know, have you figured out the burial situation? Have you figured out the finances? You know, she had to sell some of his equipment because his company needed to be sold. And then, um, she bought, had to buy a different car because her car broke down. And, you know, so there were some practicalities. And that's what Jeremiah is doing. He's saying, okay, we've grieved. We, we're in the grieving process, but we've 
come through the grieving process, there's some practical things we need to do. You need to buy homes, live in this city. Don't just deny that this exile has happened. Don't deny that your husband has died. Don't keep his stuff. Don't hang on to everything. You need to move some of that stuff out of the way. You need to move on. That's part of the grieving process, getting rid of some of this stuff. Um, and so Jeremiah writes to them about taking up their residency in the city in chapter 29. And then in chapter 30, let's look at verse 12. This is the passage we'll, um, we'll spend most of our time on here. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your cause, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. So he's basically um, speaking for the Lord, and he's saying to them, this is what God has against you. You're, uh, you're not just going to have a quick fix to this, right? It's not like um, uh, something you can go to the doctor and just get uh, a medication to take it away, right? This is terminal, this disease, this um, illness, this whatever you want to call it. Basically what he's saying is there's, there's no going back. No going back. You need to sit with the fact that this is terminal, this is final, right? And um, so we do ourselves no um, service when we deny the truth, that, that the reality is we're broken and there's no fix available. He then even says in verse 14, all your allies have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel because your guilt is so great and your sins so many why do you cry out over your wound your pain that has no cure because of your great guilt and many sins i have done these things to you oh it's pretty bleak god is the one who's bringing about this death god is the one who's bringing about this punishment this um this uh letting go and all that stuff and there's a similarity to this, actually, in a lot of the prophets. So um, they build up this kind of poetic rhetoric, uh, rhetoric or this basically this argument. So um, if you watch the inauguration, um, there is a great poem read uh, by the youngest poet that read any inauguration uh, at any inauguration ever. And it's kind of been helpful. It's uh, given a lot of people great hope about the future and stuff like that. And she's a master of prose and rhyme and all that and stuff. And so think of Jeremiah as a master poet, right? He's, he's understanding how language works. It's a little bit tough for us to mire through it, just kind of like poetry is all the time. It's a little hard for most of us who are kind of more analytical and left brain to kind of get into this more creative stuff with language. But basically, he's using these, um, these terms of illness and disease, and he's building up this case um, about how their sin and their uh, brokenness is incurable. And this is something that all the prophets have done. So in Amos, it says, uh, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So it's kind of this building up in Amos and in Micah, he says, you build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Therefore, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Um, it's like he builds up this case of why they need to be punished. And so then he says, therefore, or but, I'm going to do this to you. 
you you've done wrong and he builds the case against them and then he says here's your judgment um so in hosea he says there was stealing and lying and killing and committing adultery therefore the land mourns the beasts of the field the birds of the air the fish of the sea are taken away it's like the undoing of creation so the the prophets use the poetry to say here's god's case against you and then therefore this is the judgment against you this is what's going to happen so in Jeremiah, we're building this case. Your wound is incurable. Your disease is there. Everything is wrong. Here's the case against you, exiles. So we imagine the therefore is there. Um, in your translations, it might not say therefore. It might say but. But imagine it's like these other prophets. We're ready. Uh, we're, we're hearing this message. We're reading it. And we're going, yep, God's going to declare his judgment against us. Therefore, you should... But who devours you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. And I will restore your health and heal your wounds. Because you were called an outcast, Zion, for whom no one cares. Wait a second. The therefore is not a therefore of judgment. It's a therefore of redemption. It's like the script has been turned upside down. It's a second chance for Israel. And this is kind of the paradox of the Bible. It's that God can't be in the presence of evil, but then he sends his son to bear evil for us. In dying on the cross, Jesus doesn't just erase our sins. He takes them on himself. God then becomes united with evil in order to defeat evil. In Jesus, God gives us a second chance, even though we don't deserve a second chance. In Jeremiah, he's building this case that you need to grieve your losses because God has done these things to you. And yet then comes the therefore of judgment, and he says, nope, the therefore is going to be redemption. I'm going to give you a second chance. And so this is our hope. Our hope is in is only fueled really through grief. The key to our hope is grieving the, the loss of the old in order to then embrace the new. So the Apostle Paul picks, on, picks up on this, and I'll close with Romans 5. So if you, if you have a Bible and you want to flip over to Romans 5, this, is, this will, I think, bring things together here. In Romans 5, he says, um, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So we basically, we were talking a little bit about the courtroom metaphor and everything like that a few weeks ago with Psalm 1, but it would be basically like saying, if I want to get an audience with God, I need someone to vouch for me, to get me in the room. And so Jesus is the one who gives us access to God. He, gain, he gives us the privilege to come into God's presence. And he allows us and gives us the grace to not just be destroyed by God's presence, but to be able to stand there. And so we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Glory of God being like the presence of God, the amazing nature of who God is. And we can boast in, in that um, not only so, but we hope and also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It's that therefore right there. It's like at the most unlikely moment, when it doesn't seem like anything good should happen, God gives us a second chance. And you see, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, Paul says, but though for a good person someone might dare to die, but God demonstrates the therefore, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't earn God's redemption. Right? We're, we're not the perfect people. In Israel, they weren't um, receiving the blessing of God because they had followed all of God's commands. God was giving them a hope, a future, a newness, in spite of all the things they did wrong and all of the reasons they deserved punishment and judgment. And in fact, the message uh, of hope for um, for them seems to be that they are going to return. And so it's, it's almost kind of a, a paradoxical thing that at the beginning of the thing, he pronounces that, they're cure, that there's no cure available for them. And then at the end, he says, I'm going to cure your disease. And so I think for us, we need to live um, in a time where we, we don't have all the answers for everybody. We can't explain why COVID happened. We can't explain why there's evil in a world that was created by a good God all the time. Sometimes you're going to have a, a moment where you're just, it's clarity and you can explain that to somebody. And I, I pray that that happens often for you. It doesn't happen that often for me. Most of the time I'm sitting with that teen walking along the road and he's giving me all his denial answers, all his certainty about why his dad is in a better place and all those things. And I'm hurting and I can't minister to the kid because I need to be ministered to. And the reality is I think a lot of times that's who we are in the lives of the people around us. We're hurt and we are called to minister to hurting people too. And so the, the reality of, of hope is that we need grief. We need struggles to build that character. And that character doesn't disappoint. It, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. And so as you go through your grieving process, as you grieve with other people, as you grieve the losses that have happened, you can then embrace something new. And that newness is kind of a, a paradox. It's not that God wants you to suffer, but in that suffering, God gives you a newness that you can then minister to other people. And so you would not say, you wouldn't walk up to someone and say, God caused COVID-19 to make it so we would build character and hope. But in this suffering, there's a paradoxical relationship that God has given if we are willing to grieve our losses and recognize it and not deny it, that God has given us something new that we can then produce hope and paint a picture for what it's like in the future. And so there's, there's this working of God in our life, even in the midst of suffering and death and destruction, that is beautiful and amazing and is a key to our lives. So next week... Uh, I hope that we can practice a little lament by reading through Psalm 13. And it'll be a, a, a little bit of an, a stretching exercise for you. I'm not going to preach on Psalm 13. I'm going to um, 
lead us through a little bit of a worship time of lament during our sermon time. So uh, I hope that'll be stretching for you. Um, it should be uh, both uh, a little heavy like this week, but it'll be more hopeful, uh, I think, because we'll be reading some scripture and doing some songs and stuff like that. And so it'll be, it'll be a fun time. Um, and, uh, and if you have a chance, read Psalm 13 this week and, uh, and get, get prepared for that. So uh, let's pray and then we'll sing uh, our song, our hymn. God, we, uh, we sometimes feel like we have a loss for words um, when it comes to grief and loss. Uh, we think of people who we've lost in our lives. We think of people who are no longer with us. Um, and we realize that it's difficult and we're not sure what you're doing always. Um, sometimes we can look in the rearview mirror and we see your good hand working in spite of all the brokenness. And other times uh, we're just looking through a glass darkly and unsure yet. Uh, we thank you for Jesus who um, gives us a better picture of what uh, your love is like and what your life is. Uh, for us is like what it means to be human and we thank you that um, even while we were separated from you and while we were not um, people who were obeying your your laws and listening to you and drawing close to you that you were drawing us you were wooing us closer to you and that you sent your son Jesus um, to to die for us to take uh, the brokenness and set the world right and so uh, we pray that we might not deny of the things that we've lost, um, but that my embracing um, and grieving properly, that we might then move forward and embrace the newness that you're calling us to, this, uh, this character and, and hope um, that you produce in us through these sufferings. Um, so we, we thank you for this uh, chance to listen to your word, to, to hear from the prophet Jeremiah, to wrestle a little bit with some of the things he says and um, and the ways that which that you speak to us through him. Um, so we, we ask that you are with us this week in, in all that we do, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read you again the, the opening verses of Jeremiah 29's uh, message to the people as our benediction. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried out of exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says um so for for us living in exile whatever that looks like may we seek the peace and prosperity of this season that we find ourselves in not looking backwards in denial that we're somewhere new um but recognizing that and embracing that and i can tell you that uh that that widow and her son and daughter uh, are doing well and I follow them on Facebook, and I see their trips to the beach, and I see them embracing a newness, a new life uh, ahead. And so even in death, um, there's resurrection and new life, right? And that is the paradox, the central contradiction 
of Christianity uh, that we offer the world. Because if you're just living for this life, then when you die, it's over. Right? But if we really embrace this paradox of, of Jesus' resurrection and giving us that, then, then this life we can embrace. We can each day, we can live for today because we're following Jesus um, in this way. So um, let's seek the, the peace and prosperity of 2021, even while we still have to wear masks and uh, all of that. So. Thanks for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.